The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Numeritas, your financial modelling partner. We are trusted modelling advisors to global leaders, ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we are more than just modellers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Forward Thinking CFO podcast. I'm Stephen Aldridge, Managing Director at Numeritas and one of your two hosts for this new series. As this is the first episode of our podcast, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the series, what it is and who it's for before I introduce today's Forward Thinking CFO, and our first guest for you to listen to. The Forward Thinking CFO is a show for finance professionals by finance professionals, where we sit down with the industry's leading CFOs to uncover how they got to where they are today, what they're focusing on right now, and their advice for aspiring CFOs. Together with my co-host and fellow Managing Director, Denver McCann, we will be talking to some of the most inspiring senior executives from across the finance industry who will help us shine a light on the real-world issues and challenges that CFOs are currently facing. If you are a CFO or senior finance professional, this will be a rare opportunity to hear from others in a similar position. And for those aspiring to become a CFO, we aim to help you get ahead as you chart your own course towards the top job. Along the way, we'll share a candid, behind-the-scenes look at the modern finance function to keep on top of the latest trends and learn from some of the best in the industry. So on to the first episode. We pulled out all the stops and managed to persuade a fantastic industry heavyweight to join us for this conversation. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to Mark Stevenson, director of VTG AG, one of Europe's leading rail logistics companies. Mark's rise through the ranks to CFO is fascinating, especially considering he studied modern languages at university perhaps not the most obvious springboard for a future CFO. Mark started his finance career at Pricewaterhouse before a stint in consulting, where he worked as an advisor to AAE, later joining them as CFO in 1994. In 2006, Mark became AAE's CEO, and later the company was acquired by competitor VTG in 2015 a merger that gave VTG the biggest privately owned fleet of rolling stock in Europe with more than 94,000 rail cars on its books. In today's conversation, Mark shares a wealth of valuable insights from his journey to becoming a CFO, including the insider story on AAE's joint venture with US rail giant GATX and Mark's key learnings from that roller coaster process. His experiences of going from a private to public company following the acquisition of AAE by VTG, the challenges that Mark faced as part of the acquisition and how he overcame them, and Mark's advice on what it takes to make it to CFO and how the basic building blocks of a great CFO remain the same no matter the company size, structure or industry that you're in. I spoke to Mark a few days after he had closed a debt raise of 2.9 billion euros. It was great to have an industry leader like Mark set the bar for the first episode of the Forward Thinking CFO, and I know you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Whether you're already a CFO or at an earlier stage in your finance career, I'm certain you'll benefit from Mark's invaluable advice. 
So without further ado, please enjoy the first ever episode of The Forward Thinking CFO with Mark Stevenson. So today's guest on the podcast is Mark Stevenson. Thanks for agreeing to come on the podcast, Mark. Uh, it's great to have you here. Pleasure. So this is the, the, the Forward Thinking CFO podcast, but to get us started, it'd be a good idea if we could just look back a little at uh, how you got to be the forward thinking CFO you are today. So could you describe the kind of journey you've taken to get to your current role? Sure. And it's probably a somewhat strange one, but insofar as I studied modern languages at Oxford, mainly French, but some German, went to Pricewaterhouse, did my articles or in my exams at Pricewaterhouse in London. And then after that, ended up in Switzerland, supposedly for two years in 1990, uh, working on mostly international mandates. Left there, went to a consulting company. And from there, one of my clients was a small startup, which I joined in 1994, and therefore became CFO in title, although at the time it was um, a, a firm of about 10 staff. So that's how it all began. That got me into the railway industry. And which I've been working since 1994, growing the first company into number two in Europe, that being sold to number one, me being sold with the company and ending up as CFO of ETG. All right, so uh, you've got a, a history of working for companies with uh, acronym names with, uh, well, PwC now, of course, but uh, yeah. It, so was, three yeah this, it was, <laughs> I was there before the C, so. Yes, when it was still Price Waterhouse, yeah. So it was actually a, a startup right at the beginning uh, and, and grew to be a very large company owned by Andreas Gore, wasn't it, at, at that time? So, But I think during that time, there was also um, some, some other changes to the ownership with uh, a joint venture. Can you tell us a little bit about that and uh, you know, how it was working under those different ownerships and, and uh, how that impacted on your role? Sure. The reason I went to AAE was that GE had made a bid for 51% of the equity while still a startup. And the advice we gave was what, to what extent that gave a good value for money for the shareholder. We had a cash book at the time. That's all he had. Our advice was not to take that offer, but to actually build something himself. And that's when I joined to help him build. It was clear from the start that the railway leasing business is extremely capital intensive. And therefore, you, know, you need both equity, but also access to debt capital. And one of our first decisions was that if we were to get a, a well-known larger company on board as a joint venture partner, that would give us a lot more traction with the financing community. And therefore, we entered into a joint venture whereby initially it was a three-way joint venture with a manufacturer, but very quickly became a joint venture of 62.5% Andrea Score and 37.5% GATX, which at the time was the second largest railway lessor in the US. Clearly, on the one hand, I had a fairly mercurial CEO, that was Andreas at the time when I started. So between 1994 and 1998, he was himself the CEO. Very much agile, very pioneering we took a lot of risks the risks that he you know we talked about so one of my roles was to make sure he understood the risks and that he decided which risks he wanted to take and which not and then with 
uh, GATX, and they came in a little bit later, but they were still a minority shareholder. Then to make sure that you know, while we were doing the entrepreneurial um, investment things in Europe, at the same time to give them the comfort they required for their corporate governance and their reporting. Clearly, as an American listed company, they had a very different view on the world to the a European entrepreneur. Now, they've been in the business for 80 years. One of their great uh, prides being they had never ever missed a quarterly dividend, whereas Andreas was only interested in one thing, and that was growing. So there was clearly a tension in the strategies. So one of my you know, one of my major roles was to make sure that somehow those two strategies could be combined to be acceptable to both parties. Right. So, and as a minority shareholder, was there a, a great amount of reporting that GATX required, or was that uh, relatively modest and you kind of gave them what uh, what you felt they needed? I think you know you got to be careful. There was a shareholders agreement whereby their protection as a minority was far in excess of what one would normally expect. But that was more in terms of you know, capital structure. That was more in terms of you know, things we could or couldn't do. In terms of reporting, you know, from the very outset, we decided to go with IFRS. The reason for that was that we needed a large amount of bank debt. And what one perhaps should realise is that when I joined the company, we had 2,000 railway wagons. Um, we had a capital increase in 1995 when GeoTix came into the business. And from then, we grew the business to 25,000 wagons without any additional fresh external capital. So grown solely through financing, financing structures and reinvestment of the earnings that we made each year. So therefore, the reporting was very much aligned to the capital markets reporting, to our debt reporting, IFRS. And that was clearly at the time for a small company, quite a burden, IFRS reporting, albeit not as burdensome as today. But we did in, in report under IFRS on a quarterly basis. On a quarterly basis, there were shareholder meetings where we had to you know, provide all the normal sort of both financial and management accounting analyses. But that was a great discipline in terms of building up the way which we reported the business going forward. Yeah. Okay. So a few years after that, AAE merged with VTG. Can you tell us a bit about what drove that merger and your experiences going through that and your involvement in the process? And you say merge, I mean, ultimately it was a sale to VTG. We always portrayed it as a merger. I think VTG portrayed it as an acquisition. You know, they were market number one, we were number two. The great strategic aim of VTG was that AE was almost the sole provider of intermodal wagons in Europe. So that's the wagons for the uh, transport of containers and boxes. And they had no, no wagons of that type. And that was the driver for VTG. Andreas Gore had a, an innate distrust of investment banks and therefore insisted that the sale process be run internally without any in investment bank uh, participation, neither on the side of the vendor, on his side, or on the side of VTG. And so it was very much a sweetheart deal, B2B, without the involvement of external advisors other than lawyers. And so I ran that process. And the reason for the sale was, unfortunately, then Andreas Gore got sick and this has since passed. He felt that having such a large amount of his personal wealth in one business was not appropriate for his heirs and therefore was keen that it was the investment was put into a larger company. He retained at the time 29% of the new enlarged VTG and the rest he took out in the form of debt and cash and that the aim was to diversify his wealth management before he passed away. 
Yeah, so a, a, a sad reason for for uh, for having to do that, but that was quite a, an experience for you to to run that process without the usual inputs that you'd get from uh, merchant banks and, and advisors. So, following that transaction, you are now working in a listed company. So, how did that change your role, and what sort of challenges did you have to overcome there? I think you now well, it, it was a listed company. We have since delisted due to a change of ownership. But at the time I joined, of course, it was a listed company. Now, the focus of a listed company is clearly much different from that of a entrepreneur-led company. Um, you know, an entrepreneur-led company is much more about value creation, uh, cash flow, whereas the listed company is much more formal reporting and you know, the telling of a story, if you like, to the uh, to the shareholders, mostly via analysts, where you know, the story was perhaps more important than the content behind it. In a way, quite frustrating for me because I was very much you know, into the nuts and bolts and the drivers, you know, the, the KPIs, etc. Whereas VTG was much more a sort of EBITDA growth type story where sometimes you, know, you have to be careful that a growth in EBITDA indeed does drive a growth in underlying and ultimate value. Yeah, and so after that, De, as you say, you delisted, and I think it was Morgan Stanley, wasn't it, that purchased the rest of the shares? So there was another change there. So now it's uh, owned by an infrastructure fund. So another change again. What sort of impact did that have? It was a fairly complex process. What happened was that Andreas Gore actually sold his 29% to the Morgan Stanley fund. So they had 29% in a listed company, which clearly for, for a fund is quite a difficult investment because... On the one hand, you have a large amount of cash invested. On the other hand, you have little influence in terms of the way the business is run, particularly in Germany, where the protection of an acting Gesellschaft are very strong. And therefore, the independence of the executive board is very strong. And the shareholders, and indeed the, the supervisory board, have little right to determine the strategy or direction of the company. So they purchased 29%. They then purchased an additional um, 20% from... Kuna Nagel, Mr. Kuna, Kuna Holding, whereupon they launched a hostile takeover offer for the rest of the shares. So for two years, we were tied up in takeover offers, clearly you know, always under ad hoc reporting requirements of the stock exchange. And in a way, you know, that dis- detracted or distracted a lot from the normal course of running the business. And I think we stood still for two years while we were trying to sort out our relations with the new shareholders. In the meantime, Morgan Stanley and Owners, which is a pension fund in Canada, jointly own just in excess of 81% of the business. 15% of the business is owned by a family office in Hamburg, and around about 4% is still free float. But we were delisted about one year ago. Right, that's quite a recent event then. And you mentioned earlier on that uh, with the sort of capital-intensive nature of the rail wagon business, that uh, debt is a really important part of the financing for that. And from our previous conversations, I know you're a, a fan of private placement debt. That's something I think is a little alien to a lot of people. They're maybe not so familiar with that. How do you go about setting up uh, that sort of structure with and arranging private placement? And what are the sort of pros and cons that you've encountered of using that? I guess the one question, why did we do it at all? And that the reason for that at that time was liquidity. You know, railways, it's not a particularly sexy business. It wasn't particularly... Um, understood by many banks. There was a core, small core banks were very good at it, but the t- big volumes weren't there. And particularly when you went beyond seven years tenor, then the banks become uncompetitive. And then you need to, act, or to approach and access 
and insurance companies, pension funds directly in order to try and secure that long-term capital. So it's long-term, it's stable. They are very much taken hold. So they, they invest a lot of time at the outset in understanding the business, in financing. But what they don't want is repeated requests for waivers, restructurings, or whatever. So if you've got a business which is likely to be very fast moving and constantly requiring change in the capital structure, then private placements is perhaps a somewhat difficult sector to tap. I say the, the big advantages are long-term uh, debt. Initially, the big market, the liquid market was the US market, the USPPs. So, you know, the large insurance companies, pension funds, and for us, people like Precoa, Prudential US, a fantastic um, in, uh, partner for us. In the last few years, that market has also developed in Europe. One of the challenges in Europe, as opposed to the US, is that clearly each of the companies has its own national regulation, and therefore they have slightly different drivers in terms of their investment criteria, whereas the US was much more homogenous in terms of its approach to the market. When you go to the, those markets, you do need to then work with a bank which has experience in the private placement market. You know, they, are, they tend to be intermediaries there. All of the large banks, you know, they often will either require, well, they will require either a rating, S&P, Moody's or whatever, or as an alternative, what they call an NAIC rating, which is a US rating, which the NAIC2 equates to a triple B rating or investment grade, which is essentially what the PP investors require in order to be competitive in terms of funding due to capital requirements. So there's a lot of modeling, there's a lot of um, analysis, there's a lot of presentations. You, know, you fly to a lot of uh, very exotic places in the US like Minneapolis, Salt Lake City, all over the place, places you probably never ever visit as a tourist. That is where the larger state-run pension funds, insurance companies, or state-based pension funds, insurance companies hang out. A very different type of investor to a bank. But at the same time, once you get to know them, very long-term, very stable, very decent, very reasonable. Yeah, so it's a really question of those being a good match for the asset type and, and the kind of business that you were in, I suppose. And that's uh, perhaps for people who aren't in the rail business that that's... Uh, the message here is is to look at your requirements as a business and find find people that have uh, or find investors with with sort of matched requirements that you can fulfil. So, and I think you tend you tend to find that if you're in a shorter term funding business, and it's probably likely to be a little bit more volatile in a trading business and a manufacturing business, you're probably likely to need much more change in your conditions and structures over time, um, and that is not necessarily where the USPPs and PPs are particularly flexible. The other thing to say is that if you're in a more of a mainstream type of business where the banks understand your business and it's fairly commoditized, then there's clearly a, very, a much more liquid banking market and a much more standardized banking market. But the more sort of niche you go, the more longer term you go in particular, and the more stable you go in terms of cash flows. And our great advantage as VTG is we have immensely stable cash flows. And obviously we are at the moment in the COVID crisis. You know, we've been in lockdown for six to eight weeks now. Now, we have seen some deterioration cash flows, but it is very, very marginal. Look back to 2008, 2009, the, you know, the market, transport market went down by 29%. VTG's cash flows went down by five. So that is where we have a massive advantage in terms of cash flow-based modeling and attracting debt and indeed equity investors to the business. Yeah, very resilient indeed. Okay. 
Well, that's been really interesting background. I think if I can move into a little more about the sort of uh, career advice that other people might be interested in, in terms of uh, reaching the position of CFO. If you think back to your first few months as CFO, as you say, you started out as a in a startup effectively. So maybe when you started to get into the larger position uh, or a position in a larger company effectively, what do you wish you'd known when you were starting out that you now know? I think I was fortunate in sort of growing up in the industry, although I was in one company for a long time, when we went through different stages of development and they were essentially different companies. I think, you know, whatever you do, however you look at it, you know, the basic building blocks of a CFO role remain the same. Whatever size your company, however complex it is, uh, however multifaceted, you know, this, the basic uh, need to understand you know, the structures driving the company, so what are the key drivers of the success of the company, both tangible and intangible? How do they fit in to the numbers that you produce, both for the past and, more importantly, planning for the future? You know, what are the dynamics and the interactions between those numbers and the what you see in the world outside? And sometimes I sort of joke I'm somewhat autistic in terms of seeing the world as a series of structures, interactions, and boxes you know, all of which are wired together. But joking apart, I think it is important that you understand those relations. You don't just sit at the top, ask someone what the answer is, and then spout it out in front of the analysts. You need to understand it. You need to believe it. You need to be passionate about it. So you can, you know, as a CFO, although you are more of an internal resource, you are still a salesman. You sell the business of the company, the results of the company, to shareholders, to banks, and you need to understand fundamentally the business in which you operate, how that works, what are the key drivers, and how that relates to performance, to budgets, and to you know, the, the ability to fund the capital structure of the business. Right. That sounds like good advice. And as everyone knows, you have to be an expert in finance to get to be a CFO. But as you said, you uh, learnt languages at university and you've been in a business that grew from 10 people to uh, well what's so early on you had a few a few hundred wagons and then 25,000 wagons by the time that sold so are there any other uh, sort of standout skills that you didn't think would be important as you went into a, a finance role that have turned out to be critical in that role clearly for me languages I work in German most of the time but the it's less the language I think you know that Certainly, if you're working international business, you know, the cultural sensitivity as Anglo-Saxons, you know, we tend to believe the whole world speaks or at least should speak English. And that is what drives the world. Uh, and most people can speak English. That's fine. And I think the, but the ability to relate to other cultures, to other ways of thinking, to other requirements in terms of how you do business together is really important. Clearly, you know, um, Asia is a, a great case in point, but more even in, within Europe, you know, people look the same. But they sure as hell don't think the same. So then that's one thing. And the second thing is that while everyone sees the CFO role as very much as a numbers driven, you know, bean counter is the classic sort of a uh, you know, name we're given. Uh, yes, we do have to be very, very uh, numerate. But also in terms of you need to be literate, you need to be able to string two words together. You need to be able to sell yourself to explain things in clear, concise ways, particularly, you know, when you are talking about complex subjects, the ability to portray those and to present them in ways which other people can understand. And I think one piece of advice I give is never assume that your your audience knows anything. 
I always used to say to the guy who worked for me at AE, brilliant guy, fantastic numbers guy, but somewhat perhaps um, somewhat caught up in his own uh, complexity. I said, if you think about the presentation, you're presenting to your grandmother. If she can't understand it, it is too complex. So I think you know, make, try to make one of the arts of a CFO is to make complex things seem simple. Okay, that's more good advice there. So coming towards the end now, this is, as you know, the, the Forward Thinking CFO podcast. So for CFOs and uh, senior finance people like yourself, that what do you think they need to be focusing on over the, the next six to 12 months and then perhaps a longer time horizon, like the sort of five-year time horizon? And I think the first thing is, obviously, at the moment, COVID. So where are we on COVID? We are in the fortunate position at, at VTG that we are relatively unaffected compared to other industries. But clearly, you know, the way the whole world economy comes out of COVID, how that's going to affect our business, what it's going to mean going forward, you know, business volumes, supply chains, you know, intercontinental types of considerations. And that's probably both within six months and also with five years. And I don't think the business is going to bounce back in a V. If it does, it's going to be more like a sort of a long U. It will come back. Things will come back. But I don't believe they will come back in different fashions. We've just completed, right in the middle of COVID, actually a huge refinancing, which was signed a couple of days ago. And the interesting thing was there, not about the refinancing, we've got it away, but the fact that we were all working in home office, but we were still able, working home office, which is totally new for VTG, to create a platform among ourselves, with our advisors, with the lawyers, with the bank advisors, with our lenders, where we were able to interact on a very uh, remote basis. So there were no meetings anymore for the last eight weeks. Everything was done by Teams, Zoom, Skype, whatever. So I think you know, the thinking about how you set up your systems internally so that remote interaction is facilitated, I think it's going to be really important. And it's something that we've been forced into at VTG. We, you know, we would never, ever have dreamt of an experiment sending everyone home for eight weeks. In fact, it's been fantastic. It's been really good. It's been really, really positive. And I think we will take many lessons for that into the future. So I think you know, thinking how the new office environment in post-COVID times is likely to look. I think many, many companies will not go back to the old ways of working, or at least not 100%. So I think that also for a CFO is very important to make sure that you know, the communication around numbers, performance, budgets, etc., is assured. And that's probably you know what's going to take us the next six months in terms of projects now that we've finished our financing. Okay, well, thanks for that. That's a, a really good roundup. So there we are. We're at the end of the interview. Thanks, Mark, for chatting today. It's a real pleasure having you on and to hear about your career and some of the insights you shared there. So uh, thanks very much. It's been great to have you on. Pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was the first episode of the Forward Thinking CFO podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mark Stevenson of VTG. We're keen to hear your thoughts on this episode, so please do get in touch at info at numeritas.co.uk. And if you'd like to find out more about Mark, you can find a link to his profile on LinkedIn in the show notes for this episode on the Numeritas website. The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Numeritas, your financial modelling partner. We are trusted modelling advisors to global leaders, ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management.
But we are more than just modelers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk.